Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Brave Church Podcast, and thanks for listening. At the end of this talk, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook or Instagram, where you can get even more connected to what's going on in our community. But most importantly, we hope the following talk inspires you to take your next step in finding or following Jesus. Well, today we are in week five of The Journey. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and now we are leading up following Jesus' journey to the cross as we approach Easter. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can go to Mark 14, uh, starting in verse 53. And if you didn't get notes, raise your hand. Our ushers will get those to you. But we're going to begin reading our passage together. Starting in verse 53, it says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in these days will build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. When the high priest stood before Jesus and asked, are you going to answer What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, and then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. He said, and he went into the entrance. He went out into the entrance. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you were one of them for you are a Galilean. They recognized his accent. So immediately the cock crowed the second time, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. The title of today's talk is The Truth About Fear. As we have been going through these passages, getting closer and closer to the cross, the fear level of everyone around Jesus is increasing. As the heat is turning up, People are starting to turn away from Jesus. And as they're being filled with fear, they're abandoning him. In his final stages of this journey to the cross, none of his friends will be with him. None of them will stand by his side, which totally makes sense because they are freaking out. I mean, Jesus 
has just been taken by guards, manhandled, grabbed in the middle of the night. A secret trial is going on. This never happened. And so it totally makes sense that they'd be scared, that they'd be frightened. Remember, this is nothing like how they had imagined things would pan out when they started following Jesus. And so as we read this passage, it's bookended by a guy who is filled with fear. It starts with Peter and it ends with Peter. Jesus is in the middle. He's going on trial. But we see this narrative of a a follower of Jesus who is filled with fear because he does not yet know the truth about fear. Uh, Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? You guys remember that game? So the goal of the game is to say three things about yourself and one of them is a lie, but you want it to blend in with the truth. You don't want people to guess which one is a lie. So we're going to play this game right now, okay? Are you guys ready? So I've got three, three things. Uh, the first one is that I fainted when my daughter was born. The second one is that I met my, my wife at a bar. And the third one is that I played running back in high school. Okay, so I want to see, with a, with a quick show of hands... Who thinks that I fainted when my daughter was born? Few of you? Okay, okay. Who thinks I met my wife at a bar? Okay. Uh, who thinks that I, I played running back in high school? Only a couple. Okay. Uh, the truth, I mean, excuse me, the lie is that I didn't faint when my daughter was born. In real life, This is a lot like what our spiritual enemy wants to do. Make the lie blend right in with the truth. I believe that our souls have an enemy that wants to do as much damage as possible. The Bible refers to Satan as the enemy of our souls and the father of lies. A lot of the fear that we experience in life is rooted in a lie. And the antidote to this kind of fear is believing the truth, the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. The Bible says that the truth shall set you free. When when you discover the truth, it literally lifts the weight of fear right off our backs. And so I wonder what lies we are believing that is producing fear in our hearts. You might think that your career is who you are. Now, I've never met anyone that actually said, my career is who I am, I find my worth in it, I find my value in all of these things. Right? Like, nobody necessarily says that. But, but maybe you know what it's like to feel better when things are going good at work and feel really bad about yourself and struggle when things aren't going so good. Or maybe you know what it's like to um, have a bad day or a bad week as a parent and, ju- and then just feel like you're a failure. It's a lie. Or maybe you know what it's like to mess up, to make a mistake, to sin in your relationship with God, and then feel like God can't possibly still love me as much as he used to. Or God, you know, he just can't do what he's promised to do through my life because of what I've done, as if God is keeping score. So today, as we dive into this passage, we're going to uncover the truth about fear as we look at two truths and a lie. The lie that Peter believes and the truth that Jesus reveals. And so we're going to begin with this lie. The lie that we see Peter believing right at the beginning is a lie that every follower of Jesus will encounter. In verse 54, it says, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards, and he warmed himself at the fire. 
The first thing you can write down in your notes is that fear tells us to follow at a safe distance. Fear tells us to follow at a safe distance. Peter was right outside the courtyard of the high priest. He was, he was at the high priest's home. He was in the courtyard sitting with the guards and the temple police. Um, but he wasn't in the room. And to be fair, Peter wouldn't have had the credentials. He wouldn't have been allowed in the room. But we also know from other gospel accounts that John, another disciple of Jesus, a friend of Peter's, he was in the room. He used a friend connection to get in the room. So it's very possible that if Peter wanted to be in the room, he could have been in the room. But I don't think that he wanted to be in the room. Peter trailed behind because he was afraid. Peter stayed far enough away from Jesus to avoid taking any heat for being associated with him. He had a pretty good idea what was going to happen. I mean, they came, they grabbed Jesus. It's the middle of the night. It's just 2 a.m. now as they're in trial. And so it's no longer safe to be associated with Jesus. And so Peter believes this lie that he should follow at a distance. Uh, have you ever noticed that a lot of times when we read stories about Jesus, uh, we're Jesus, like when we relate it to our lives. Uh, if Jesus is on trial, we think about all the trials that we're facing in our own lives. If Jesus is being unjustly accused, we think about the injustices that we've experienced or around us. But it's important for us to recognize that in this story right now, we're not Jesus. We're Peter. Or we're the religious leaders. We're not Jesus. And so listen, Peter isn't the only one that believes this lie. We believe it too. We believe it every time that we decide to stop taking steps forward in our faith because it's a little too close to Jesus for comfort. For some, following at a safe distance, it means staying in the crowd. You know, we feel a lot safer in a crowd. It can be harder to join community. Uh, our home churches here at Brave are where we do community together, where we live life together. And right now they're on a break, but they're starting back up after Easter. And one of our themes, our theme for this season's home church is not a crowd, a community. We've seen so many people joining Brave and, and becoming a part of, of this large gathering on Sundays. But the last thing we want to be is just a large gathering, just a crowd. But sometimes it can be scary for us to take a step to move beyond the crowd and into community because, see, in, in the crowd, we feel safe. We're anonymous. In a crowd, nobody expects anything of us. Uh, we can be spectators in the crowd. We can just watch. We can watch at a safe distance in the crowd. But once we join community, well, whoa, like people, they might find out who I really am. They might learn some things about me. If I open up and I get close to people, they're going to see me up close. They're going to they're see me in a different light. And what if they don't accept me? What if I feel judged? What if it doesn't go so well? And so this can be really scary to be honest about others with who we are, to invite others into our lives. But, but community rooted in the love of Jesus is the safest and fastest way to grow closer to God. And so it's, it's one of the purposes of the church. This spring, I want to encourage you, if you're new to Brave, if you're, if you're one of the many who have just started coming or making Brave your home church, it's so much more than what we're doing right now. 
I want to encourage you to check out a home church. Um, sometimes we follow at a distance with how we use our words, how we talk about our faith, how we talk about things. Um, when you're really close to something, when you have a close relationship to something, um, it's noticeable the kinds of words you use, how you describe it. For example, is Brave Church a church? Is it their church? Or is it my church? Is it my church, my mission, my pastors? Is it what I'm a part of? Or is it a thing? That's the difference between being in a crowd and belonging and taking ownership. Is Jesus a savior? Is he their savior? Or is he my savior? What kind of words do you use to describe Jesus? How do you describe your relationship with your savior? What kinds of words do you use to describe this? Another way that we move beyond a safe distance is quite obviously in how we associate with Jesus. Just, just like Peter in this story. Um, are we okay with people knowing that we're a Christian? And if you're here exploring faith, this is a safe place. We're so glad that you're here. But I want to say something right now to everyone in this room that would say that they are a follower of Jesus, that maybe you've been baptized or you've made a conscious decision to cross that line of faith. How do you talk about it? How do you associate with it? See, on Easter Sunday, there will be so many people in the crowd. We all know there's these big Sundays like Easter and Christmas or when we do an event where there's so many more people in the crowd. But one of the things that differentiate from being a part of the crowd and being closer to Jesus is you start extending invitations. And the thing about an, an invitation is it's personal. Your name's attached to it. When you invite a neighbor to your church or to come here about your savior, your name is associated with Jesus. When you share it on social media, it's your name next to your post. Now back to Peter. Okay, let's keep in mind at this point, he's not a total coward. Okay, we, we've got to give him some credit because he followed this far and the other guys didn't other than John. And so here he is, but he's not by Jesus' side. And you know, in, in my opinion, we don't know for sure, but I think Peter was there because I think part of him wanted to jump right into the room and start defending Jesus. I think part of him wanted to do something about it. He was really concerned with what might happen to Jesus. But then the other part was so afraid. And you know, it wasn't that long ago. Remember, this is the fisherman with a pocket knife who cut off a professionally trained soldier's ear and was ready to fight to his death to stop them from taking Jesus. So that's, that's how brave Peter was. Peter was a really brave guy. How interesting is it that, that someone can be so brave as Peter was, but then wrestle with fear and be so afraid just moments later? So I think a lot of us experience this, this tension where at times we feel brave and at times we don't. And that's what lies do, is they distort reality. See, here Peter is, and he's got this, this perception, this belief that what Jesus is going to do, we're going to take Rome. We're going to go for it. And when things don't pan out the way he hoped or the way he thought they would in his journey of following Jesus, the lie comes in and it says, hey, what if he's not really the Messiah? What, what if they kill him and he just dies? What if they kill him and then they come after me too? 
So Peter warmed himself by a fire rather than face the heat with Jesus, believing the lie that he needed to follow at a safe distance. So now that we've explored the lie, let's take a look at two truths. In our passage, it says, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, Fear is weakest when we embrace suffering. Fear is weakest when we embrace uh, suffering. This claim uh, was considered blasphemy when Jesus responds to the high priest and he says this, And it's worth noting that none of their other testimonies held up in court. Like Jesus was seemingly off the hook because nothing they were saying could have actually convicted him. They had very strict laws. Their testimonies were starting to contradict each other. And if a testimony contradicted each other, it was thrown out. And so when Jesus responds, he gave them all they needed to crucify him. In verse 65, skipping down, it says, Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, this seems kind of weird, right? Like, why are they blindfolding him and then hitting him and then telling him to prophesy? So to prophesy is to speak from God's perspective. It's to have knowledge from God. And this started from a passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 11.3, It says that he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. So this was a messianic prophecy from the the book of Isaiah. And so what the rabbis did is they interpreted this passage as a test to see if someone who claimed to be the Messiah was really the Messiah. So they blindfold them and punch them with their fists. And they believed that the real Messiah would know who exactly hit them and call out the name of the individual that hit them. But Jesus remains silent. He doesn't submit to their tests. And so they begin hitting him. And then the guards follow in suit. And they begin beating him as well with open-handed slaps on the face. This is the beginning of Jesus' physical suffering. And I imagine that this was the first moment where Jesus began shedding blood for us. The first moment where Jesus began to physically suffer for all of humanity. A lot of Jesus' ministry is really interesting because the truth about who he is is a secret. Jesus is doing these miracles and, and telling people about the kingdom and telling them, calling them to repentance, but then he says, Hey, keep this a secret. Don't keep this between us. Don't go and tell anyone. The time hasn't come yet. And then he starts to tell a small group of people, he starts to tell his disciples. But it's not public yet. So this moment, when he responds to the high priest, is the first moment that Jesus goes public with who he really is. And the reason he does this is because he's waiting for the moment that he knows for sure they won't crown him king, but will kill him instead. See, Jesus, he carefully orchestrated this moment to go through hell for us. He was popular. If he would have told them too soon when he's doing all these miracles and he's popular guy, right? They would have made him king. But that wasn't the plan. Jesus was ready to suffer. And suffering, when done in love, 
is one of the most powerful things that we can experience in this lifetime. Jesus, he chose to suffer. James 1, 2 through 4, it's one of my favorite passages on suffering. Check out what it says. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, Earlier on, the same night of this trial, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying because he knew the kind of perseverance it would take to get through the suffering that was before him. And so I love what James says in this passage because he says, he says, let perseverance finish its work. And the final words of Jesus on the cross were let it be finished because his mission had been accomplished. In, in, in our house, in the law's family, we have something that we really hold on to, and that is that we should never waste our pain, that no pain is meant to be wasted, no suffering, nothing difficult or challenging that we go through, that God can use all of it. And so look at what James says at the end when he's talking about suffering. He, he tells us what the end goal of all suffering is. It's that you may be mature and complete not lacking in anything. So when we go through suffering with a godly attitude, when we have the right outlook on what God can do with our pain, it actually is something he uses to mature us and show us that he really is all that we need. Um, We've been talking for a little while, my wife and I, about something special that we want to do for my mom. So my mom, if you don't know, she has multiple sclerosis. And if you don't know what that is, it's just this ugly autoimmune disease that affects every part of your body. And it's interesting because she's had it for a long time. I was 17 when she was diagnosed with it. But as she gets to different levels of disability, it kind of feels new again because there's these big transitions that happen. So the one that's been more, more in our, the forefront of what we've been facing lately is her ability to walk. And so it's been getting cha- more and more challenging for her to walk. And so Marcy and I, about a year ago, we just started you know, talking about this and trying to empathize and, and ask the question, if we were about to lose our ability to walk, what are some things we'd want to do before that happened. And the, the first thing I thought of was, well, I would want to go to every place I've ever wanted to go while I can still walk. And so I asked my mom, hey, is there anywhere that you've always wanted to go that you've never been? And she said, yes, I've always wanted to go to Paris. And so this was a year ago. We started, Marcy and I, we started planning and trying to figure out how we could make that happen. And it just never came together. Like one thing after another, uh, then she got pregnant and that changed a few things. And so the trip just never came together. But this last Monday, we were talking about it. And Marcy just said, I feel like this is something you're supposed to do, even if you just need to take her alone. And I said, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, Mia's super little still. Like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And she said, no, just look into it. Let's see what we can do. And so I was looking online, and I figured out with our credit card points, we could book two round-trip tickets to Paris for $50. Yeah. And so we leave in two weeks. Because <laughs> that's how we got the deal. Um, but I, I told my mom, and she is so excited. She is so pumped. 
and we were, we were telling this story to some friends at dinner the other night, and we were just talking about what she goes through, and she's such a, a role model and an example to my wife, and so she was talking about how, man, on her worst days, like when she uh, can barely walk, her legs are numb, when her hands are on fire, when her vision is blurry, when nothing in her body is working the way it's supposed to, she goes in her room, listens to her audio Bible, and worships. And when you hear that, it can sound like she's a saint, right? But actually, something deeper is happening. When nothing in her body is working, she turns to God because it's the only thing that works. And it's in this place of our deepest suffering and our deepest pain that God wants to do his deepest work within us, where he can develop an uncommon maturity, a maturity that, that really stands out, and, and discover that we truly have everything that we need in him. So when you're facing something difficult. Maybe you know someone that's facing an incurable illness. Maybe that's what you're up to. You know, that's what you're going through here today. Maybe you know someone that's going through something. Whatever it is, if you turn to God with that attitude, with that perspective, he can use it to do something amazing in your life. Um, This is something that I honestly have really struggled with because I get a lot of health anxiety. Like my grandfather's been crippled since he was 25 with rheumatoid arthritis, it came on very suddenly. So I've, you know, I've, I don't know if you've ever like gone on that rabbit trail of WebMD. I highly don't recommend it, but I'm like running and I'm like, man, my leg feels a little numb on this run. Like maybe I have this or that, or, you know, but, but that happened to him so unexpectedly. My brother was born with cerebral palsy. My mom has multiple sclerosis. Both of my grandmothers have battled cancer. And my father-in-law, my new father-in-law has a liver, an incurable liver disease. And so there's just this sickness all around us, which by the way, I have to tell you guys, he got his liver last week, his liver transplant. And so that is just, been a miracle for us in and of itself, but we're praying that his body accepts it and that everything goes well. But just being surrounded by all of this illness, sometimes I can't help but, but feel like it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before something happens to me or somebody else that I love. But that's a lie. That is fear talking. Notice that Jesus, we never see him in a fearful place. Like he's on a boat in the middle of a storm. His disciples are freaking out and he's asleep. (laughs) Or he's in standing trial and he, and and, and notice the intentionality, like that he knows right what he's going to say, when he's going to say it. And he's not afraid to say it because he's ready to embrace the suffering on our behalf. Never waste your pain. Proverbs 18, 10, it says, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower The righteous run to it and are safe. You are safe in the presence of God and he will protect you. God is for us even when we've doubted him or even when we've abandoned him, turned away and betrayed him like Peter. Which leads to our last point. Fear is no match for a repentant heart. Fear is no match for a repentant heart. Uh, Peter messed up, right? He totally messed betrayed Jesus. 
have you ever messed up? Anybody? Couple? Okay. Turn to the person next to you and fill in that blank. I messed up when? All right. We're going to get real here for a minute on a Sunday. Like, I messed up when I ran through, like, three stop signs on the way here. So, wow, you guys just keep going. You guys just mess up a lot. Like, wow. So, yesterday I was driving, and I rolled through a stop sign. And if you're a police officer here, forgive me. But I rolled through this stop sign, and my wife goes, oh, you're doing the California roll. And she grew up in Illinois, and I said, no, this is just how we drive. (laughs) Stop signs don't really mean stop. But we all mess up, right? And we need repentance. And the reason that we need repentance often is because we keep sinning. Okay? Sometimes there's this myth out there that, that, that thinks that, that goes like this. When I decide to follow Jesus, when I cross the line of faith, and I, and I repent, and I receive salvation, that that's it. But that's not it, because who woke up perfect the next day? Right? We, we need repentance. Following Jesus is a life of continual repentance. And so here we have Peter. And at the end of this passage, after he messes up for a third time, it says that he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, throwing down curses uh, was really serious because what, what he would have done, it wasn't a curse word. What he would have been doing in, in their culture, they had this formula. They'd say, hey, may, may such and such happen to me if I'm not telling the truth. So in the early church, uh, Justin Martyr, a, a Christian apologist, said that Jewish rebel leaders would give Christians the choice between denouncing their faith Accepting this kind of curse, if Jesus is real or if they're a follower of Jesus, and, and either being put to death or living, letting, and being let go. And the reason they would actually let them go is that they believed any real Christian would never be able to curse Jesus. And so it appears that this is how low Peter fell. After the rooster crowed a second time, it says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. When Peter realized what he had done, he wept bitterly. He was overwhelmed with sadness. He was overwhelmed uh, by the betrayal. He betrayed Jesus. He completely sold out Jesus. And what I find so beautiful about recognizing the betrayal, recognizing our mistakes is it paves the way for repentance. Um, There's a movie, I don't know if you guys have seen it, it's called A Star is Born. I was talking to a friend about it last night, very, very emotional, very dramatic. And I was talking to a friend about it tonight. He said, I I feel like I got tricked because I was crying at the end of that movie. Didn't see that coming, right? But there's this moment where after, after the guy, he's a rock star, they're both rock stars, and the husband, he messes up big time so much so that he ends up going into rehab. And she comes to visit him, his wife. And there's this moment where he is so overwhelmed by how he's betrayed her that he weeps bitterly. And this is what that looks like, to to recognize, I messed up so bad. I don't know if I can come back from this. 
You know what's amazing is in, in Luke's gospel account, it's worded a little differently. We get a little bit more of the picture. What happens in, in Luke is Jesus actually, it says, it says that after the rooster crowed a third time, it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then he remembered. Most scholars believe that when it says the Lord turned, like he can't see Jesus. Jesus is in there being beaten. But most scholars believe that he had a vision of God in in his darkest moment, in his weakest moment, of his greatest betrayal. He had a vision of God looking at him, knowing that the moment he realized when this rooster crowed, that he needed a look of grace, that he saw his savior's face saying, it's okay, I knew you were gonna do that, but I still love you. And he turns in repentance. He changes direction. The word repentance it means to, to change directions. See, some of us, there are areas in our lives that need to change directions to continue following Jesus. And when we realize and when we face these things and when we repent, there's no fear. No fear and repentance rarely occupy the same space. There's a shift that happens. And so uh, I was thinking about it this week. Uh, just, you know, we, we say it all the time, following Jesus, following Jesus, because it's an active thing. It's something that we are committed to as Christians for the rest of our lives. And I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, but if you played that game where you're just kind of following someone around and annoying them, you know, like maybe your parent, you're just like, just keep following them. And they're like, man, they're trying to lose you. The, the thing about this is when you're like five to seven feet back, unless they're way faster than you, they're not going to lose you, right? You just keep following them all day annoying the heck out of them, right? But when you get closer, when you get to three feet or two feet or, or, or one feet, when you're right up next to them, you've got to really pay attention. You've got to watch their, their, their hips, their motion. You have to anticipate what direction they might be going because if they take a sharp left and you take a sharp right, you're not following anymore. And so sometimes in our faith journey, when we start to take steps out of the crowd to get closer to following Jesus, it can be kind of scary. Because as we get closer to Jesus, we start to see that there are parts of our heart and areas of our lives that wanna go left, but Jesus is going right. And we're confronted with that reality and we have to decide in those moments when we recognize those things, will I repent? Will I recognize what is not right with God. See, over time, we can become so desensitized to these things because, you know, it's not always big things. It's not always the obvious. In some cases, it is. In some cases, you see the big thing. You have that moment of realization and you weep. But other times, it's the small little things that you've become desensitized to. You've started writing off. I believe that God is calling everyone in this room to repentance. And that as we repent and as we change directions, we are met with the same look of grace every single time that Peter saw that night. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I wanna pray for you as we move into a time of response in worship. God, I pray that you would give us today the courage to sit in this moment, to be with you and to acknowledge 
anything that you show us, reveal to us, anything we have a conscience about, that we go, you know, this is, this is keeping me from being closer to you. God, as we, as we enter into this moment, I pray that we would feel your grace, that we would see your grace and your love for us, that fear would vanish and that we would find hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Bay Area, we would love for you to join us at a Sunday gathering in San Ramon. For directions, gathering times, or information about our Brave Kids program, visit us at brave.church. Also, if you want to help support what God is doing through Brave, you can give online to the Brave Foundation at brave.church forward slash foundation.